0: Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU The Voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus in Palenville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Minneapolis-St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. In the Media Weekly, FYI Nation, nicolesandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, detour talk, Radio Monterey and Blanketing the globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of BradBlog.com. But today it is a Friday sort of thing with your guest host, Moi, Angie Quero. It's hard to get away from being an all Trump, all the time hour. Well, not just today, but every day. And and there is a lot of that to cover today, but I promise you value within those stories. R.J. Eskow is going to join me. He'll be talking about Trump's proposed economic council. That kind of got lost in the noise this week. And the topic goes way beyond the great man and small hands of Orange himself. That list of, oops, until just now, all white guys, features a roster of power that is going to long outlive the Trump phenomenon. And his story tells you exactly what the ultra-conservative, ultra-rich, but never rich enough, of course, segment of America wants to keep doing to get more money and more power. And that is bigger than Donald. And it's just a few minutes away. R.J. Eskow from The Zero Hour joining me here on the broadcast and visiting us to sum up the whole week Will be Gotta Laugh of The Nicole Sandler Show. And again, on the surface, it's a lot of Trump that she and I are going to talk about. But we're going underneath that to the common and controversial habit of discussing Trump in mental health terms. He's crazy. He's nuts. He is a sociopath. And in a society that does, in fact, stigmatize mental illness, whether we're talking chronic or acute, yeah, this does matter. It is dangerous ground. But I think it's legit to use those terms for him. Laughy and I are going to deconstruct that, so stick around. All of that said, there is non-Trump news around. Kudos to USA Today for letting us know about the DEA. Checking out yours, yes, your travel records to seize millions in cash. Brad Heath of USA Today came out with this. Federal drug agents regularly mine Americans' travel information to profile people who might be ferrying money for narcotics traffickers, although they almost never use what they learn to make arrests or build cases. Instead, the targeting helps the DEA seize a small fortune in cash. This is the latest chapter in the American War on Drugs, which never gets anywhere, which siphons money away from things that could help us deal with drug addiction, that would siphon money away from the prison system where we keep putting casual drug offenders. In short, this is a hamster wheel. Listen to what he just said. Federal drug agents going into your travel information ostensibly to look for people who are taking money around the globe for drug traffickers. Okay. Arguable whether that's a good use of our time and money, but okay. But they get the information and are apparently using it just to make money, just to make money. The article goes on to say that the DEA agents have profiled passengers not just on airplanes, but on Amtrak. And they pull reports from a network of travel industry informants, and that goes from ticket counters into the back offices. Agents are assigned to airports, and they go to train stations, and they keep an eye out for passengers that they want to question or search for reasons, the article says, as seemingly benign as traveling one way to California or paying for a ticket in cash. You go to California and you pay for your ticket in cash, you are inherently suspect. That is justification to open up your records to the DEA so they can check you out. What the DEA is doing now incorporates knowledge from within those groups in the cause of targeting drug traffickers. But a former supervisor of the DEA group assigned to the Jackson Atlanta International Airport says, they count on this as part of their budget. Basically, love this quote, you've got to feed the monster. But USA Today went further than that looking into court filings and found as an example that agents took $44,000 plus from two people traveling on a train to Denver after picking them out during a, quote, routine review of the computerized travel manifest for Amtrak. USA Today found 87 cases in which the Justice Department went to federal court to take cash away from travelers based on agent tips about suspicious itineraries. Check this article out. it's, It's much more than I can go into at the moment. It is much worth your time. Brad Heath's DEA regularly mines Americans' travel records to seize millions in cash at USA Today. From there to yet another rape case where... Courts took pity on the guy involved, wanted to save his tender behind from the clutches of the criminal justice system. And so we have yet another powerful statement from a rape victim who had to settle for speaking her piece instead of getting justice. This is the St. Patrick's Day rape of 2014 at the University of Colorado, a freshman being escorted home by Austin James Wilkerson who promised her friends that he would take care of her because she was drunk. Instead, he raped her. Those are the basic, I mean, the rough, hard outlines of what went on here. But the more you read about the case, the more you'll see the correlations between this and the Brock Turner case in California. Not only what happened in the courtroom and afterward, not only because another heart-rending statement has come out from another unavenged rape victim, But also in the sheer ugliness of the case itself, Brock Turner lied in his statements to authorities about his drug use, about whether the woman had given consent, about whether he knew she was unconscious, about what he did to try to escape from the scene afterward. He lied about all of that because every little bit of it and the subsequent letters from his family and friends afterwards showed an immense ignorance of the reality and the impact of rape and the immense selfishness of his efforts to get out of responsibility for what he had done. And it's happening all again with this case in Colorado. Happened. Past tense. It's over. And again we hear from the family, his life was ruined by this. Oh my God, that is right out of the Brock Turner handbook. Poor guy. His life was ruined by this act of raping. He had post-rape done the same things to cover his tracks, Spreading false information about why he was with her, what ensued—I don't even want to go into all the details. It's—it's—it's it's, it's beyond infuriating. It is concerning for how we are so far into what we seem or would like to think is an understanding of rape culture, understanding it enough to try to shut it down, do something, identify it while it's happening, and cut it off right there. Punish people who need to be punished. And we keep not getting it. We keep not getting it. So here is another case. Remember the name, Boulder County Judge Patrick Butler, who sentenced the rapist to 20 years of probation and a two-year work release program. Work release means he, he gets to go out and do his gig, his gig. He goes out, he works, and he comes back to be locked up for the night, two years. That woman is damaged, at least for the immediate future. I hope not for life. People can and do recover from the most horrendous things. We got to work harder to get our system to recover for the rape culture that it is mired in. Mired. It's going to be almost a relief to talk about nothing but Donald Trump for the rest of the hour. So let's get right to that on the broadcast. I'm Angie Caro. Some good interviews coming up. So stick around. <laughs> The Brad Friedman Show from The Brad Blog. Brad and Desi are taking the day off, and they have left the show and the controls in my hands. I don't know why they keep doing that, but they keep doing it. So thanks, guys. I'm Angie Cuero. I I will be the first to admit, I am absolutely thrilled to watch the Republican Party implode. I'm thrilled. There will be some serious impact down the line if we don't have two, at least two, vibrant, intelligent, compassionate parties with differences over how good things are to be done. But the GOP has well gone past the point where it can be that party, I believe there are good and decent people who still, to some extent, call themselves Republican. You can't get away from the phrase, I didn't leave the Republican Party, the Republican Party left me. There are legitimate conservative economic points of view about how things can be accomplished. I don't agree with a lot of them once I turn them over and really digest what their point of view is but they seem to be well-intended, informed people who just see the world differently than I do. And that's what makes horse races, and that's what makes a vibrant political culture. I am all for multiple parties. But the GOP, as it's constituted today, cannot serve that purpose for us. And the purpose that they have served over the decades since Lee Atwater has made them a danger and a poison to America. So as far as I'm concerned, what's happening to them under their ugly stepchild, Donald Trump? Donald Trump, who is just the manifestation and the distillation of everything they've been dog-whistling about for years, hard as they might try to disown the man? He is the GOP philosophy distilled. So this couldn't happen to a more deserving party in both sense. The individual party, Donald Trump, what's happened to him this week, is well-deserved. And it couldn't happen to a more deserving political party, the GOP. The position that they put themselves in, it keeps reminding me of Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors, which has been, you know, um, a 1960s movie and then later on an 80s movie. It's been a musical. And... That's all about Dopey Seymour, you know, silly Dopey Seymour who can't get a girl, and he's an amateur botanist, and he engineers a plant, and that plant doesn't want the standard plant food; it thrives on blood and flesh. Feed me. And eventually, it grows madly out of control, Feed me. and ruins Seymour's life. Feed me, Seymour. I don't think the parallels get more obvious than that. We are looking at the little shop of GOP horrors manifesting and unrolling right in front of us. So, yeah, I'm enjoying this. In real life, bullies and bad guys, they don't get what they deserve. So this is really delicious. But the downside to the carnival is this. It's so loud and so shiny that the less colorful, more somber, really important stories, those stories get lost in the noise they're not as sexy. You know, they're not as fun. They're not as easy to pillory. And you need to stop and pay attention for longer than 140 characters. And so this is why I so want to talk today to RJ Eskow. I love him. I love Richard. And you probably know him as the host of The Zero Hour, which comes out of We Act Radio in Washington, DC. RJ is eminently qualified to talk about all of this. He worked on Bernie's campaign. He is smart as a whip. You can find his work not only online with The Zero Hour, but you can also find him working for the Campaign for America's Future. And that is where he has put together a column we're going to talk about today. American greed, Trump's economic team, is a who's who of what's wrong. And it is a very detailed, worth-your-time serious read about the people that Donald Trump assembled to bring forth, if he ever gets near the White House, his economic policies. So we're going to bring him on to talk about that. RJ Eskow, I love having you back on again.
2: Oh, it's always awesome to talk to you, too.
0: you and I need to establish why this even matters, because now the conventional wisdom is, you know, Trump is falling apart. The RNC is falling apart. They're having a behind-doors meeting today, last I heard, a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment. Who knows what's going to come out of that? But with all this despair and negativity coming out of the campaign, Why does it matter who he would name to his fiscal panel or his economic panels? Because he's not going to be president.
2: Well, I mean, I suppose there's a chance that that's true, but, uh, and that's highly likely to be true, but it matters for a couple reasons. I think one is that uh, we don't know he's not going to be president. We assume he's not going to be, but things could happen between now and the election. And I think more importantly, Angie, I think, I think the real reason it matters is because, you know, he ran as a different kind of republican. And before he really began imploding – because remember, this, this happened a few days ago – before his campaign really began collapsing, uh, there were, he had some tense relationships and undoubtedly some internal negotiations with the Republican Party. And basically I feel uh, that they told him – this is what you've got to do to be our candidate he ran an unconventional republican campaign he opposes the trade deals that most republicans support he said he didn't want to cut social security which most republican politicians want to cut and uh, i think they came back to him for one thing and said Uh, you're going to have to be more of a Republican on economic issues if you want us to help you. And I think that's reflected in the speech he gave in Detroit, the so-called economic policy address he gave. And I think in terms of the group of advisors, I think what it told us is, is that even this different kind of Republican isn't really so different at all. He's a rich, older white guy who hangs out with rich, older white guys. Now, since I wrote this story uh, he's apparently said he's going to name some women and ha- apparently has named some women to his advisory team because he was criticized for it being all male. But, but, the,
0: but he had the to be th- criticized for it. I mean, that's just I mean, he, right. he, yeah, he's, he's always been tone deaf. by the fact that anyone within his campaign could look at what he was doing and saying, hey, you know what's going to come down if we put together this list of white guys and put it out there? Here's the critique that's going to come. Why don't we head that off?
2: right right i mean i i think that uh... i think it shows that that's what even a quote unquote different kind of republican who supposedly speaks for working-class white people and let's be clear it is just white people um, that uh, even a guy who supposedly speaks for people who are part of the middle uh... middle class or working class is really when it comes to republicanism a rich guy talking to other rich guys and trying to sell their agenda
0: And we know they have binders full of women, so they actually Uh, could have found someone.
2: Well, Trump, I'm sure he (laughs) does, literally.
0: (laughs) Well, let's look at some of the people that we saw lined up there. We've already established that, you know, whatever he has said subsequently, the initial slate he put out was all white guys. And there are some very common names we're seeing, some very familiar names cropping up, by golly, there's Goldman Sachs again. Goldman Sachs is everywhere, not only in, you know, on the Republican side of things. We'll get to Hillary Clinton. But, you know, here we are again looking at some of, even if people don't recognize the names, in terms of affiliation and in terms of background, we're looking at the usual suspects.
2: Oh, uh, yes and no, in the sense that I think they're even worse than some of the usual suspects. I think, you know, we have bankers, we have I mean, look, Steve Feinberg alone, who's one of the, the um, five Steves among uh, 13 people that, that not only aren't they diverse by gender or race or age, they're not diverse by name. Five of the 13 are named Steve. But uh, Steve Feinberg, uh, who, uh, you know, he's the guy who runs Cerberus Capital Management. Cerberus is, of course, the three headed dog that guards the gates of hell in mythology. (laughs) Um, and the three heads of Steve Feinberg's operation are the three things that should make him famous. One is that he bought – they bought Chrysler in 2007. Uh, you may remember that and said they were going to make it profitable again using those great private sector techniques we all yes, care about. because they always it's- work so well. Instead, they declare bankruptcy. It took bailout money. Um, they also are big in the gun industry. They uh, own a number of gun companies, including Bushmaster and Remington. And uh, the manufacturers, uh, Bushmaster made the AR 15 that killed all the kindergarten children in Sandy Hook. And uh, they promised after that, when investors were outraged, that they'd sell off their gun holdings, or at least the Remington holdings. They didn't do it, Um, and they promised they would not try to influence the national debate about guns, but executives from Cerberus were out there funding ads against gun control in Connecticut, where the Sandy Hook shooting killed. So, you know, the lowest of the low. He's a major Republican donor. Uh, We've got uh, Steve Mnuchin, Mnuchin, who uh, besides, I mean, the good thing is that he was uh, an executive producer of Max Mac. Mad Max Fury Road which I thought was an awesome movie but that's the (laughs) only good thing I can basically I can say about him he and his team bought uh, the the, uh, housing lender that became One West they were foreclosing in, in, in racial ways, racially discriminatory patterns. They were foreclosing on windows. They were widows, rather. They were using illegal foreclosure techniques. And
0: this is not uh, just your assert- assertion. In fact, in the article, by the way, for anybody who's just tuning in, I'm talking to RJ Eskow, and the article we're discussing appears on the pages of Campaign for America's Future, ourfuture.org, and it's entitled America's American greed, Trump's economic team, is a who's who of what's wrong. RJ, to go, to back, to go back to what we were saying here, um, the California Reinvestment Coalition, as you note, it has actually asked authorities to investigate One West's pattern of racial discrimination in its foreclosures. So this isn't you sitting behind a mic somewhere saying, hey, they're a bunch of racists. You know, right, no, 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 no. The,
2: the California Reinvestment Coalition has asked them to do that and also cited its abusive pattern of foreclosing on Widows, which I pointed out in the piece, makes it morally indistinguishable from all those silent movie villains who are, you know, who would foreclose on windows right before they strap Nell to the railroad tracks, little Nell.
0: <laughs> and so, the smartest guys in the room too, yeah, exactly. These go are after the after widows of the low. You know, mm-hmm. I mean Harold Hamm,
2: who's the uh, Oklahoma oil billionaire, who is a major fracker. He, you know, he's very the the enormously destructive technique called fracking, which is so harmful to Mother Earth, but this Mother Fracker is not only one of uh, one of Trump's top people, but he's being—they're cons- saying he would be a, a strong candidate for the job of Energy Secretary if Trump became president. He's worth 11.3 billion dollars, they according to reports, and he's a big funder of the University of Oklahoma. And when. Earthquake researchers at the University of Oklahoma wanted to look into the fact that earthquakes in Oklahoma have gone up nearly 400 times, and they think it's because of oil and gas uh, practices, especially fracking. So he tried to get them fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, this the, the, we could go on and on. John Paulson, who did the uh, deal with Goldman Sachs called Abacus where uh, Goldman Sachs wound up paying half a billion dollars for the way it misrepresented that deal to investors. I mean, you could just go on and on. These guys are the lowest of the low, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, in fact, let's go back to Andrew Beal. He's a banker, and he was in the distressed property business. And the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Beal acknowledges that some debt collectors engaged by his banks may have pushed too hard. And so, you know, all of these guys have records for having done things that are, if not outright nefarious, at least suspect. And And
2: slimy and loathsome. I mean, you know, these are not legal terms so I don't, you know, these are not slanderous charges, they're just I mean, look, Mr. Beal acknowledges uh, some debt collectors uh, might have pushed a little too hard you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> my boys <laughs> were a little rough the, this, but that's what we're talking about, we're talking about the most vile kind of, you know, misleading invest, uh, misleading homeowners and and entrapping them of foreclosures you know, what Mnuchin did, what what, what Beal did, I mean, these guys are just vile, and you know, it's Steve Feinberg buying up all these gun companies and really trying to maximize the money he can get out of it. And just the fact that he he put them all in a single entity once he bought them all up called the Freedom Group. I mean, just these guys are just, they were horrible.
0: Well, here's an interesting question, though, is, for example, when you've got a guy who's worth, you know, 11 billion, billion with a B dollars. And you have Trump, who is a public clown, even before everything that happened this week. It was pretty clear he was a public clown. Why would they sign on with this guy? I mean, they don't need him. They don't need his money. And in fact, associating with him conceivably could damage them. I don't know. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe they're untouchable. What's your thought with what they get out of this?
2: Yeah, you know, Angie, that's a great question. And I don't really know the answer to it, except that one, I know that real there are a lot of very very wealthy people who are just fond of Donald maybe the way you know like he's the goofy kid in the gang movie in the goonies or whatever you know i mean they're fond of him he's like their goofy sidekick and 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 i maybe you know there's an ego trip that goes along with being asked to be a financial advisor to a presidential candidate even an embarrassing one who's you know colored orange. I don't know. know, I mean, I I just don't know the answer, but it's a great, I I will say it's a great question.
0: I want to look at a little tiny sidelight that's hidden in your story. And I find this kind of thing distressing. I have no answers for how it happens. You talked about the fact that uh, the gun that was used in the Sandy Hook shootings, the Bushmasters AR-15 was one of the investments of the Cerberus company. And they had said, after they were called out on that, that they were going to unload the holdings. And then you have a link to this. Later, they reneged and said, well, we can't find a buyer. And the story hidden behind that to me is how many of these, the the furies du jour, the outrage of the day that kind of then fades away. And one of the downsides, there are many downsides to that, but one of them is that these companies can hold up the right flag at the right moment and say, we surrender, oh, by golly, you're right. And they know that if they just wait long enough, another outrage will come along, another shiny thing will move through the internet, and they don't have to change anything.
2: Yeah, I mean, they they, they worked out a deal where investors could... Uh, instead could uh, kinda cash out of that part of the investment but they got to keep the investment now they got very cushy reporting to the extent that it was reported like the New York Times said well they failed to find a buyer well you know what no if they sold it for a dollar they'd find a buyer Mm -hmm. so it's not true that they failed to find a buyer what they failed to find a buyer that they could make money or that gave them as much as they wanted that's the real story i'm certain nobody said we absolutely refuse at any price I, i don't believe that so so the fact is they wanted to make money, they wanted to or, or have marginal losses at best they couldn 't do it, but instead they said, oh we can 't find a buyer okay, well, you know what? They made an immoral investment, and they should be held to that they shouldn 't be let out of uh, the moral responsibility for that, but I think
0: they happen mm-hmm. mm-hmm. talking to RJ Co but his article is up right now at campaign for america 's future our dot American Greed, Trump's economic team, is a who's who of what's wrong. You also hear him as host of The Zero Hour. Uh, R.J., let's talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton. Okay. It's been really difficult to try to parse through the good-hearted people and their messaging about Hillary Clinton is as bad as Donald Trump. We need to work as hard against Hillary as we do against Trump because either one in the White House will be a disaster. as as is frequently the case when the political rhetoric heats up this hard, nuance goes completely out the window. And the fact that you can support Hillary Clinton as at least somewhat influenceable if she gets in there. At least someone who could reasonably have some hope of being pressured gets completely lost. In fact, I saw a tweet the other day that Obama might as well be a Republican, and that came from <laughs> that came from a Bernie or Bust supporter. So can we talk about the rhetoric that's happening, you know, putting the Republicans aside, rolling the orange guy over to the side of the road for a minute, Let's talk about what's happening on our side and and talk about how to bring some of these divisive voices together. And who do we just surrender and say, this person is hopelessly never Hillary, hopelessly Bernie or bust. We're not going to get anywhere trying to get this person to vote for Hillary. And as you said earlier, this is not over. And I, like you, am not willing to say Trump can't get into the White House. I am not willing to say that.
2: Yeah, no, I've just seen too many crazy things happen in politics. The... um I, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. First of all, I I, I guess I have a bunch of thoughts about that. Starting with, uh, in terms of communicating with folks like that, first of all, you know, I don't condescend. I don't disrespect their opinion. I I respect their opinion and their feelings, most of them. I mean, you know, you can't say that. It's crazy to say they're indistinguishable, but, you know, it's, it's certainly understandable to be discontented with Hillary Clinton. You know, it strikes me that, First of all, she's running a pretty progressive campaign, and I, we should note that. But, you know, in some ways, she has expressed over the years and during the primary some pretty – what in previous decades would be considered – republican like ideas you know yes. about and values uh and secondly i think it's important to note that in a normal election year some of the things that have come out even in the last week about the emails where she hadn't turned them all over when she said she had and all of that would be enormous campaign problems and enormous campaign issues but when you're running against Donald Trump none of that matters because yeah. he's so insane um so it's not crazy for people to not be crazy about Hillary Clinton. I I would start with that. Um but on the other hand there are a couple reasons why I feel strongly about not ele- about defeating Trump, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's start there with defeating right. Trump before we get to Hillary. Uh one is anybody who studies history knows that the really scary leaders who took their country down very dark roads were not as they were more like buffoons when they ran than they were like terrifying leaders they, whether it's Mussolini or Hitler or anybody else you want to pull out of history uh Perón Juan Perón well uh, you know they were kind of clownish until they got in so mm-hmm. the fact that Trump is clownish does not uh does not comfort me. And is it inevitable that he would turn into some sort of totalitarian dictator? No, but it's possible enough that I'm really, really frightened of Trump. That's number one. Num- and I'm really frightened, what, even if he doesn't get elected, of the horrible feelings he's bringing out, the rage and the racism and the hatred that he is inciting, which will outlast his candidacy. Yes, so that am-
0: is ours. We need to own that whether Trump's at the head of it or not.
2: Yeah. And, and, and so I'm really concerned about those things. As for Hillary, uh, I will say this in her favor. One, as you said, she's, you, you pronounce it influenceable, which I think sounds much better than influenceable. But uh, <laughs> she can be influenced. And I think that's, I do think that's not nothing, as they say. And that's one. And number two is, you know, I was. I've been really disturbed that she's been courting Republicans I've been worried about that but I was uh, pleasantly surprised that her economic speech this week stayed on the progressive side it did not you know Tilt back to the right. Now, I, I am worried about her in foreign policy a lot. I'm worried that she's too militaristic, mm-hmm. too hawkish. I'm worried that the, about these reports that she's seeking the endorsement of Henry Kissinger. I mean, to me, that's courting monsters. I would not go there, and it worries me a lot. But all of that said, she is clearly the world would be if you want a political revolution. I would say to my bro- brothers and sisters in the Bernie movement. If you want a political revolution, first thing you got to do is make sure Donald Trump doesn't get elected. Second thing you got to do is get ready to mobilize, uh, to pressure Hillary and to pressure Congress should Hillary become president. And, you know, Ros- uh, Rosario Dawson actually made this point at this People's Summit uh, a couple months ago in Chicago, and I thought it was a great point. We'd have to mobilize even if Bernie had become president. That's true. You know, every progressive idea is going to get resistance. you got to be prepared to get out in the streets, to make the calls, to make the – so let's get ready to mobilize. Let's get ready for political revolution. But let's make sure that at the same time we're not being unconstitutionally locked up for exercising our rights of free speech and all the other things that Donald Trump would do if he became president.
0: Well, you and I are mostly on the same page. Uh, My concern, and I'm sure it's your concern, too, and I know it's the concern of many people I talk to who are willing to vote for Clinton. They look at the fact that she makes progressive noises in a speech, and they know that she does not always walk her talk. Oh, really? (laughs) And, you know, and it does come down to a matter of get her into office and then try to influence her. But to close the loop on this conversation, then, let's go back to economic policy and economic advisors. Let's talk about how you think Hillary's lineup would differ from a Donald Trump lineup and how how heavily represented Goldman Sachs or other, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, how well they would be represented. And if they have her ear, where does that put us?
2: Well, um Look, the last two Democrats, if history's any indicator, the last two Democratic administrations, uh, Bill Clinton's that she was very close to, of course, and, and Barack Obama's gave prominent All all sorts of positions of power to Wall Streeters uh, from Goldman Sachs and elsewhere, or to public officials like Tim Geithner who had been far too cozy with Wall Street in the past. So uh, yeah, I mean that's the definite fear, uh, and you know I've suggested that she could allay that fear by promising not to appoint Wall Streeters. To positions of influence in her administration, she hasn't done that. So, Do yeah, she even I mean, would she even consider that making that pledge? Yeah. Uh, she hasn't yet uh, I don't know what she would or wouldn't consider but I have a feeling that she relies on a lot of people I know she, that she gets a lot of advice from Robert Rubin who was Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary who ran Citigroup and by many many analyses by independent interpreters should have faced prosecution uh, so I, I I mean she she uh is Definitely listens to the wrong people. Gene Sperling, who uh, was a, a senior advisor to Bill Clinton as well, and to Barack Obama, is um, you know was featured in what in a "Funny or Die" video at the um, Democratic Convention, yes, and which uh, you know. Uh, I did not think hilarity ensued in that one. That in that video, my <laughs> that I did not generous. think it was. I did not think it was a laugh riot. Laff. It was about, but worse than that. I mean, you know, okay, you know, you don't have to be a comic genius to 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 be, a, uh, to be a an economic official. Although it helps, but um, more troublingly, that whole the whole premise of that video was based on the kind of like budget-cutting austerity economics that uh, that is really bad for the country. So uh, I am worried about the kind of advisor she would pick. By giving Gene Sperling that kind of a role, by not saying she would ban Wall Street, uh, and so on, and by reportedly listening to people like Bob Rubin, I worry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last question. Uh, this week she came out and said, I will stop any trade deal that kills jobs. And she's positing that as being against the TPP. Politicians this is not a, this is not a Clinton exclusive. All politicians parse their words right. very carefully. She said I oppose it now, I'll oppose it after the election, I'll oppose it as president. I can foresee a future where she said, well that was that TPP and now it's been tweaked by, you know, two parentheses and so now it's now is a different TPP now I can support it.
2: I can also foresee a future where she says she's against it, but she and Obama have wink, wink said, "Well, you know, you know, I got to say, I'm against it." Obama pushes it through in a lame duck session. I think that's what they're already putting that in play. And then she said, "Well, you know, it wasn't me. I was against it." Uh, So I think what she needs to do right now, today. Is get out there and say, not only do I oppose it, I am personally planning to phone each and every member of Congress to, to ask for their support in voting it down in the lame duck session.
0: That is worth getting out there. RJ, you're always a gem, and I really appreciate your spending time with me today. And because my own show only has live in person guests, I am sending someone out to the East Coast to get you and bring you back. Fair warning.
2: All right, it's a deal. I'll do it. <laughs>
0: okay. RJ Eskow is the voice behind the Zero Hour, which is syndicated from We Act Radio. And you can find his work at
2: You can find my work at this is the
0: You're a doll. I'll talk to you later.
2: Pleasure as always.
0: Bye-bye. Coming up next, we analyze the whole of the Trumpkin for the week, and that's with our very own gotta laugh. I'm Angie Coro. Stick around here on the Bradcast. <laughs> the broadcast. I'm Angie Clarke, sitting in for Brad and Dizzy today. Awaiting the word. What the Republican Party is going to do now that they found they have a complete maniac on their hands. Oh, so I use the term maniac. And there is a lot of distress in some people when you use mental health terms to describe Donald Trump. And there's a long history of denigrating people with genuine mental illnesses with terms like that. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So stick around for that. I actually feel in this case, and I speak as someone who has mental health issues, and I have had all my life. I am a mental health activist. I'm, you know, an out and proud mental health patient client, whatever you want to say. So I recognize the legitimacy of that, but it's one of many things that I think we need to look at in detail. And we're going to do that with one of my favorite people to have these wide scope reviews of what's going on. Gotta Laugh is joining me. You've heard her on Nicole Sandler show, who I love to bring on the air to give a fantastic summary, a virtual buffet of everything that's happened in the news. <laughs> and she gives us just enough sugar and salt to help it go down, even though without her, it would make us gag. I don't know how we manage to always make it about food, but I'm good with that. I'm good. I'm good with that, too, honey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of things that are not appetizing, which we weren't, Donald Trump. (laughs) Wow. He's outdone himself several ways this week.
3: Yeah, you know, I could use him as a diet aid because I lose my appetite every time <laughs> I think about him. Um, he's One like a big thing- orange finger down the throat. God, yes, he is. Um, brr. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I have a, a theory about yes. about his whole campaign. I, I was it's been swimming around my head, and I decided that he wants the win. But Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to win. He doesn't want the responsibilities of being the president. He doesn't he just wants the power. He likes the popularity game. He likes the attention. He likes to be on camera. But he doesn't
0: want to win the presidency itself. What What? he you know, he wants to win something. He's after. What is he after? If it's not the victory of being in the White House, what victory is he looking for?
3: Well, he's gotten so much exposure now. I'm sure he's in it for another book. Maybe he's going to start his own TV station, his own podcast. Who the heck knows? Somehow, the attention he's getting is going to benefit benefit him monetarily. It has to. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only reason he would pursue it this far. Because if he, lo- if he doesn't, I don't think he'll drop out because he doesn't want to admit failure. But if he ends up losing the way... Right now, at this moment, it looks like he might. How is he going to face that failure unless he he trumps himself with <laughs> uh, uh, a big win elsewhere in in the media?
0: Perhaps yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting to watch him grapple with when the media does not "quote unquote" behave. You know, when they're being crooked and when they're being unfair. And this week, you know, CNN put up a little a little crawl at the bottom, the Chiron at the bottom, that said that repeated his claim about Obama being the founder of ISIS and <laughs> putting in parentheses, you know, he's not. Yes, I and, love that. I mean, that is as basic fact-checking as you can get. That is run-of-the-mill, what-we-should-see-all-the-time journalism. And to Trump, it was an affront.
3: Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, somebody else nailed him, too, uh, actually. on, on his, his sort of self-admission inadvertently came out with something. Um, on the Maddow show, Steve Kornacki was uh, the sub-host, and, uh, and so he was going on and on about an interview that Hugh Hewitt did on his radio show, the conservative host, Hugh Hewitt, uh, and, and commentator, uh, with Trump. And, and Hugh Hewitt was trying to convince Trump that maybe his wording— uh, could change. Maybe calling calling President Obama the founder of ISIS wasn't quite the way to go about it. And <laughs> and Hewitt said, "I to quote, I just use different language to communicate it." And Trump says, "But they wouldn't talk about your language, and they do talk about my language, right?" Bingo. Mm. Yep. Hello. There you go. It's right there. It, it, you know, he, he he's he's admitting something, and Kornacki brought it out in the open it kind of went by everybody else but he Mm -hmm. admitted it and it's all about just the attention and and the talk that's about trump that's all this is he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about when it comes to any kind of economic plan or foreign policy but yeah everything is self-serving whether it's his people that you know that he takes on or whether it's himself they they're not there for any anybody out here in, in America mm-hmm. you know the voters the people that are hopefully not going to vote for them but but uh, they all are are in it for themselves and what they have to gain and this is not to say that of course other politicians and their and their staffs and everything aren't doing similar things in terms of being out for themselves but it's just so blatant here yeah.
0: Yeah. And part of his disguise, you know, for lack of a better word, is it's the media is not his friend. The media, these are the people that he beats up. He is with the voice of America against the crooked media. And as you found out this week, that's absolutely not true at all.
3: Right, uh, Chris Salusa reported in, in a tweet uh, that uh, Trump's I hate the media thing is all shtick. he loves the media, and he, he comes up with this this quote uh, from, I guess, the Washington Post, I guess his own writing, because I'm blocked from because of a paywall, so I can't tell you, but the, the quote is, all told over the past four months, Trump spent more than 20 hours talking to the Washington Post reporters who were working on a biography titled, <laughs> Trump Revealed, An American Journey of Ambition, Ego, Money, and Power, Which Will be out in august just uh, another week or so and trump was gracious and generous with his time took nearly all of our questions, they say, and often extended the length of our interviews, sometimes doubling or tripling the allotted time. That level of cooperation was a surprising switch from the campaign's initial reaction to the book. And John Favreau, who used to write uh, speeches for President Obama, Obama, says, you're down in the polls. You spend 20 hours with reporters for a book about yourself. Stunning
0: malpractice. So there you go. Well, okay, let me play devil's advocate, okay? Okay, sure. On the off chance that we have some Trump supporters somewhere listening (laughs) to Brad Friedman's broadcast, what if this is a man who saw the error of his ways and decided to sit down and be accessible to the media and speak frankly and let the chips fall where they may?
3: Well, first, let me let me just sort of change that scenario. You mean his staff kicked his butt and said, "Better <laughs> sit down with the media." I don't think Trump ever sees the error of his ways. I don't think he thinks he makes errors, but I think he might listen to people who say, "You'd be wise to try this," and maybe mm. he did do that. Um, however, because the book is about him, I really don't think that's the case. I really think he thought, well. I'm going to talk you know he banned Washington Post from his uh, rallies so That's right. for him to to stun you know stunningly turn around and say here's 20 hours of free time and hey let me give you more time than
0: you ask for I think it's because the book is about him the book is about him absolutely yeah. and speaking of things that would make his his advisors absolutely crawl out of their skin Guantanamo oh Priceless. I didn't know about this one until you told me about it. Dive in. Yeah, I just saw
3: this. Um, Matt Pierce of the L.A. Times uh, tweeted out, Donald Trump wants military trials for U.S. citizens, <laughs> which is illegal. Uh, and and Trump says, and this is from the my Miami Herald, it came out uh, today. And uh, it says, a, a president, Donald Trump, might push for Americans accused of terrorism, Americans accused of terrorism, mm. to be tried in a military trial tribunal at Guantanamo Bay Cuba. Oops. He says <laughs> I would say they could be tried there. That would be fine. Uh, and then he goes on to say and I'm trying to find it. I, I want to make sure that if we have radical Islamic terrorists, we have a very safe place to keep them. <laughs> yeah. um, he said um, President Obama, he added, is allowing people to get out of that are terrible people. I don't even know what he's saying here. Allowing people to oh, to get out that are terrible people. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and he's asked, well, would you try to get the military commissions, the trial court there to try U.S. citizens. and Well, I know that they want to try them in our regular court systems, and I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. I would say that they could be tried there. That would be fine. No, it wouldn't the be fine. The Constitution according to Trump. Yeah, uh, well, it's shredded Constitution according to Trump. Yeah. I don't think, he, I, as as, as a, a, a dear Mr. Khan said, the, the speaker who was at the the Democratic Convention, he held up the Constitution in his hand and said, I don't think Trump has ever read this. I'm now more convinced of ever than ever that he has not read this.
0: And and if he did, I think he would find that way to rationalize that it doesn't apply here, it doesn't apply to this person. And we're dealing with somebody, this is a topic that comes up a lot, and it's, it can be divisive. We're dealing with someone who occasionally manifests symptoms of being truly mentally unwell. Yeah. The, the responsibility to declare someone mentally ill belongs only to a person who's actually spent time, you know, who has the authority, has the education, has the licensing to sit down with Donald Trump and say, I declare this person has the following mental illness. But you and I were talking about the fact that we hear things like that, that he's okay for Americans to be put into Guantanamo, that Mm -hmm. it's okay for him to, you know, bring their little trials there because they shouldn't be tried in the courts that they're guaranteed a trial in. And you and I say, well, God, God, that is nuts. And what you and I were chit-chatting about was the fact that that raises the hackles on a lot of people whose point I can see, but with whom I disagree, that this is inappropriate language to talk about Donald Trump, that we're not talking about a mental diagnosis. We're talking about a freehand, what's the word I'm looking for? We're talking about an irresponsible, degrading use of terms that people who do have mental health problems or do You know, our activists on behalf of mental health frown upon and they say it's not appropriate to call him crazy, not appropriate to call him nuts, not appropriate to call him a psychopath. Uh, you, but, I,
3: uh, yeah. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. No, but but sociopath is more is more uh, appropriate. I think sociopaths are people who who don't feel guilt about the things they say and do. Yeah. And and uh, and egocentrity is a big part of that narcissism. Um, so he may not be literally insane. The mm-hmm. clinical definition of insane. But um, you know, my father was a doctor, and he used to tell me that um, neurotics have their own logic. You cannot win an argument with a neurotic.
0: No, and dad, no, and it's, dad, like, it's exactly. like trying to argue with a fish. I mean, they just squirm exactly. <laughs> around and change shape, and th- you know, then they're swimming off in some completely different stream. It's like, wait, you just moved the goalpost here. Mixed metaphor. <laughs> But but it's true. Their their, their worldview, and again, disclaimer, neither you nor I is a mental health professional, but we are discussing the appropriateness of using these terms to talk about Donald Trump. And the fact is, there is some lay knowledge out there. And it does help to capture what it is he's doing. As you just said, if you're dealing with a neurotic, changes the subject or moves the goalposts or, you know, just squirms to a whole different area. These are observable facts. Well, of course, and and we're also talking about
3: extreme behavior here. We've never—I don't think—we've ever had a presidential candidate who who it, it throws out the nasty, uh, demeaning, you know, just uh, vitriol, you know, one thing after another after another, whether it, whether it's racist or misogynist or or uh, you name it, bigotry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there—if somebody that's at the very least mentally unstable. Um, You know, we and and also there is a big difference between saying you're crazy and you're crazy. We're not we're not necessarily saying he again, he's the clinical definition of insane. But there is a colloquial, you know. You're nuts. He's crazy. I, do want
0: to, I want to claim some empathy here for the people who do say that, you know, mental health is badly enough misunderstood in our culture. Sure, and we absolutely. don't need to demonize the mentally ill. We don't need to cheapen the terms that actually do apply to them or that have been used to degrade them in the past. And I totally get that. I'm a mental health activist, though. I'm You know, I'm an out-and-proud, bipolar 2 depressive whose life has been saved by pharmaceuticals and good therapy. So... I, I, yeah. and, and I tr-
3: Just for the record, I grew up with a mom who, had there been medication at the time, uh, could have been treated, and and she was. I don't know if she was bipolar, but boy, if she wasn't, I'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to live with her swings and 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 episodes. You know, for forever, and and so I I have experienced that myself. And I recognize certain signs in people. And no, I don't throw around the term loosely in a serious way. But yes. I will definitely say, oh, God, here, here he goes again. He's nuts. You know,
0: yeah. That, yeah. Uh, and I will claim that little bit of turf that says, you know, I feel like I'm qualified to speak. I feel like you're qualified to speak for most yeah. of us are qualified to speak because there are many people who struggle with mental illness. Sure. It's a reality in our lives in America. And I deeply empathize and sympathize with the people who say oh, these yeah. terms are inappropriate." I'm not going to worry about reforming the language today. I'm going to worry about getting the message out right now that this man is deeply dangerous, that his mental state could well be contributing to how dangerous he is, and it is relevant how unreformable he appears to be and that this does not just
3: affect uh, you know voting fun time where we're all listening to speeches and picking them apart and and kind of getting a laugh out of some of them and, and other times you know taking them very seriously but this affects the entire world this man would be the commander in chief this man has to have nerves of you know the calm and reason and nerves of steel which is one reason uh, president obama it was so it is so impressive and was in his duties because He is very calm. He's very reasonable. He takes time to think and and to a fault sometimes. Yeah, but
0: he's hopelessly black. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I mean, he's that's really, it. really good at what he does. But unfortunately, yeah, he's got the I... wrong skin, so he really sucks as a president. Um, he that's He clearly isn't qualified. <laughs> Obviously,
3: he's Kenyan Muslim, and he's a leader of ISIS and, you know, the founder of ISIS, which it makes him the CEO of ISIS, which means he has income, which means he's making money off of ISIS, which clearly
0: disqualifies him and he should be impeached. I'm so glad we're on the same page. I'm so glad we had time to talk to each other again. If I weren't doing Brad's show, I wouldn't have the chance. So this rocks, girl. And you rock. I very oh, much appreciate wow. talking to you. And same t-
3: same here. I just love you to death. Thank you so oh, much. Before
0: we let you go, let's yeah. get your websites out there. Speak, my dear.
3: Well, it, I'm. I have uh, my own spot at nicole sandler dot com, and you can find me at LappiesPlace.com, dot com, which is the same as the tab on nicole dot com. And I am on her show every Tuesday, uh, uh, three fifteen <laughs> Eastern on Tuesdays, and she's there Monday through Friday.
0: You rock. I'll talk to you later, girl. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap on the broadcast. I'm Angie Crow. happy to be with you on this Friday. And I thank Brad and Desi for letting me sit in. I hope I've brought you some laughs among the despair for the week. A dose of despair is inevitable, though, is it not? I'll be back to talk to you about the next, oh, not just the adventures of Donald Trump, but all the adventures of our political and news system here in America. I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, be well.
1: 950 KTNF, St. Louis Park, Minneapolis, St. Paul. The progressive voice of Minnesota.